The Title Block, episode number four, Kevin Lamont, part two. Welcome to the Title Block, a podcast about Canadian theatre designers, their history, and their craft. I'm your host, Michael Cruz, and this is episode four, the second half of my chat with the director of lighting design for the Shaw Festival, Kevin Lamont. Kevin and I speak about a few of his projects in this episode. I tried to structure this interview a bit more, and I think it suffers for it a bit. Despite this, we talk about aspects of lighting design and the life in the theatre that I think you will find interesting. You can decide for yourself, however. Here's the second half of our chat. Do you have a specific process for visualization? Like, what helps you conceptualize lighting? I mean, a, a, a set designer will be able to do a rendering. The rendering may not, again, it's a two-dimensional object, and they're making three-dimensional objects, but at least it gives you some sort of way in to understanding what they're thinking. As a lighting designer, how do you find your way in? How do you, how do you visualize things, and how do you express them to the director? You're, yeah, because we're talking about the great ether here, right? right. Like it's, um, you you know, you can't uh, visualize it until you <laughs> until you visualize it. You mean on stage? Like it, yeah, they, they got to see it. You know, there's a lot of directors that work like that. Like yeah. they, no matter how much you talk about it, right. they got to see it. Um, that when you have a longer association with a director, that gets that gets bettered. You know, you get a bit of a shorthand in in the, in what that might be. Um, I don't. I think uh, I don't talk a whole lot about it anymore. Do you know? Like it's more. It's kind of not talking about the lighting sometimes. Do you know? Sometimes it's talking about the play itself, um, the director's approach. Yeah, and I kind of get from metaphor. You know, turn that into the what the feeling of the thing is going to be. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's color. Sometimes it can be very practical. Something like. Um, direction, whether it's flat and diffuse, whether it's backlit and shadowy and not that accessible. or Like somehow in the discussions with the director, somehow is probably the wrong word, but in the discussion with the director, I get these clues that feels like, tastes like, walks like a duck, must be a duck, you know, that's what we're going to make. And you have the uh, probably distinct advantage of a as a seasoned designer, to be able to build that kind of trust quite quickly. First of all, you're working with directors you've worked with for a number of times, so they know what your work is, they know what your process is. But also, if someone, somebody new says, oh, Kevin Lamont's going to be your designer, they say, okay, well, I can trust Kevin. I know he's not going to leave me with no choice or in a lurch. So they kind of are able to give you the space you need to... I guess so, yeah. But I like to think I do that the same with a young director as well, is to give them the space like give them what they need you know Mm -hmm. and that's kind of a like I I don't know if I say it in so many words but I've always tried to kind of check in with the director at certain points that like you know are you getting what you need here which can be you know which can be a big question like sometimes it's simple as notes like 
you need more light on so-and-so somewhere, or sometimes it's like, no, it doesn't look like I thought it would look. And a lot of times we're so far down the road, but I still ask the question so that I know that, you know, we get one chance at this, so let's um, let's do our best. You yeah, know? yeah, that's that's kind of the the ephemeral and quick nature of lighting design. Now, um, just to get a bit more personal, I remember working with you on a uh, somewhat non-traditional version of Shaw's Heartbreak House, in the sense that the traditional version usually centers in somebody's study and there's a there's some sort of architecture that's reminiscent of a ship that's a big theme in the play and um, I don't want to go talk about Heartbreak House too much but with uh, with the set this was back in uh, uh, in the late 90s early 2000s um, Peter Hartwell was a set designer uh, Tadeusz uh, Brodecki um, who's Polish right is that right yeah Polish he's from Krakow from Krakow um, had had produced this show, and it was pretty. It was a r- pretty radically different take on the design of the show. Yeah. And I remember having a discussion that said, well, "This is kind of weird. Like, are the audience going to buy? They're expecting to come in and see a ship, and they're not seeing a ship. Are they going to buy into it?" And todayish, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, obviously from what I recall, but he basically said, "This is it, though. This is what our vision of the play is, mm-hmm. and we." the audience is coming to look at it. You don't, like an artist doesn't paint a portrait and then go to the gallery and watch people, how they like how people react and then change the portrait. It just makes their expression and and, and gives it over to the audience to view. So um, very much uh, Tadeusz's uh, way of working, yeah. Yeah. Do you think that the, that there's some sort of social contract between you and the audience that if you have a play that is exceedingly dark or if you um, make it, you know, difficult. If you, you make dark, a choice, like they can't see them. They can't or do you see. Mean yeah, dark like in the story. Dark. No, no, dark that they can't visibility. see. Visibility. Yeah, visibility. Yeah, like right. audiences expect to see actors, and if they come to see, for example, a comedy, and you've done something that is that makes them much more shadowy, and those facial expressions. Like, do you? If that's a choice that is important to you in the play, do you feel that you have an op- obligation to the audience to at least give them? What they feel they want, and and how do how do you manage that 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 choice? Like, do you feel that connection? Well, it's you know I'm always a partner in this, right? Like, uh, so if we've done something criminal, it's not just me going to jail <laughs> here. Um, and you know, usually that's the director as well that we've made those kind of choices. And the director would have made like I'm trying to think of a comedy that. Um, well, I recently did. Um, Girl Friday here at the Shaw, which is an adaptation of the front page. The front page is a comedy. Mm-hmm. It's a dark, dark comedy. And so is Girl Friday, too. So I think that some people were surprised by the... That was directed by Jim Mizon, and I think some people were surprised by the kind of... It was it had a kind of gritty uh, courtroom feel to it with v- uh, a little bit of warm sunlight that got through some very dirty windows in this where in the reporter's room of a criminal courts building in Chicago so it, it was um, it was darker than you'd expect a comedy to be but I think that it was richer for that that the story was richer for that um, visual storytelling do you know that uh, so so that worked um, so I guess to I, I guess it's very rarely am I off on my own somewhere on one of these things where I'm saying, you might think it's one thing, but I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna change it up on you. It's it's rare. It's usually um, 
it's usually a direction, right? Uh, mm. That we kind of all want to go in on this. And in terms of where the audience sits in this, I think that, you know, for me, I'm you know, working with the director, working with the other designers, working with the actors on the piece, and we're creating something amongst ourselves. And we're very privileged to be in the situation to be doing that. And we're creating something for us that that's, that's what we do. Um, and then another thing happens when an audience watches it and now it's it's theirs there's another kind of what they think when they're watching it it starts to become their own so i think there's kind of two steps to it and i don't necessarily i am probably unconscious of this but i think i probably consider the audience at some point do you know there is some point in the process of dress rehearsal or something where i might have an idea it's my, I think it's my own response, why I would change something, but it might, I might be starting to come conscious of, hey, in two days, some guy <laughs> is gonna be sitting in the seat and he paid money for the ticket. And like, I might, I, I, but I, I, um, I do it in collaboration. I make it in collaboration with everybody else that I'm working with and, and. Um, You're all in this together. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think in and but Tadeusz comes from a very different tradition of making art. Like he's been, um, it's his vision, and, uh, and it's quite uh, quite specific. Do you know? Yeah. Uh, Speaking of specific positions um, and choices, you worked with Neil Monroe, the director. Of Neil I Monroe, did, yeah, a number of times. Many times before his, he died in two thousand and nine. Uh, he was known for his singular choices in direction and design. Uh, now, can you describe your relationship with Neil and uh, and give us give some insight on how he worked and he and you worked together to produce these? He uh, Neil, of course, was a well-known actor and started directing. Um, maybe I think I first worked with him probably in 1990 or so or 1991, and he had started directing maybe in the late 80s, and uh, Christopher invited him to come here to the Shah. The f uh, didn't work with him initially. He probably did a couple things, and then he, he and I just hit it off, and I don't know what that was, whether he saw other things that I was doing that he liked, or I'm not quite sure where it came from, but anyway, he, um, he would ask for me to be on these projects that he was doing. Not, not all of them, but a number of them. And uh, I had a great... Um, working relationship with him in the sense that uh, his point of references were different than other directors that I had talked with. And uh, and they were things that I knew about. They might be about more contemporary art or they might be about film. That was often a thing for him was a, was a touch point visually was film references. And uh, that was a time when we didn't talk a whole lot about movies and theater you know like mixing the two of them that that didn't like we'd talk more about fine art or um or the play itself like what that just conjures up but neil pulled in these other references that were kind of i could really get a hold of you know there was real visual metaphor in what he was talking about and he was knowledgeable about that kind of composition and mm -hmm. stuff so and uh yeah and he put me on some big shows very early on in my career 
and challenging things like uh, counselor at law was in black and white right. these kind of things also the front page I did a production of for the front page that Neil directed too and um, I don't yeah, I don't know whether anybody laughed at that production of the front page. Like, it's a comedy, but it, you know, it had a kind of uh, really mean, mean underbelly to it. And uh, yeah, he, that's that's the, what he did, you know. Um, and he was very good at creating tension. That was his thing. And I think he also thought that there was something in lighting there too. That lighting can help right. um, keep that wire taut somehow, you know. Um, now during. Uh, I remember you and I had discussed at the time his production, your production, their production, of The Glass Menagerie, which he did with the National Arts Centre. Yes. Uh, and this was in... And 19... came to Toronto as well. And came to the Toronto. Royal yeah, Alex. Royal Alex. Yeah. Royal Alex. That was in 1997, I think. Sounds about Something right. Something like that. Um, I remember that the audience was a bit perturbed, or certain members of the audience were perturbed because of the visual choices you'd made for making it a bit dark. Oh, because of its darkness. Cameron Porteous also did that set design for that, right? And that was a... That was a, Like, Cameron did a very different take on it. Like, it was all kind of scrim walls and uh, and really askew. And did you see it? You I didn't it? see it. No, I didn't. It had, chance. like in Neil's way, it had... Um, lots of things from memory hanging in the air, I remember, over the set. Like a phonograph and stuff. One of the great things that I remember from that show was that um, we didn't have the budget for moving lights, but that's what I wanted to do at the time was to have a have a sunset, um, sunrise rather, like a little tiny sliver of light at Laura's feet and as if she'd kind of been standing there all night so that this this light elongated over this long transition across the floor. Mm-hmm thing that Neil and I kind of cooked up because he'd had a thing with uh, Tom falls asleep drunk on the sofa Laura goes and takes his glasses off and then she puts his glasses on her little menagerie <laughs> so, <laughs> so there was that he also had a moment where a kind of glass um, mobile came in and started revolving around and she was caught in the middle of all these little glass figurines and anyway all of these things were in this production of the glass menagerie of Neil's and um, so I didn't have the moving light to move the light across the floor but what I did do was stack like a dozen um, probably color trans at the time but narrow like 12 degree color trans like and uh, I cut one as a little tiny sliver down down right. right then the next one was a little bit so they were piling on but the rectangles were getting longer so I'm basically just cutting a long swath on the floor, right. you know. And just for people who don't know what uh, these color trans are, there it's ba- it's basically a profile light. You can have shutters, and you can shape the light to whatever yeah, four make a square or rectangle. Yeah. And you sort of stack these up in a series of shapes or blobs on the floor to make yeah. this column. So I drew a long kind of rectangle, and there was say there was twelve lights, and each one was getting larger and larger and larger. So it gave the impression, crossfading between them, of the light starting to move across the floor from uh, uh, and Laura so he staged her to start with her toes on one of them then as the next one would fade out she'd move back and it was kind of like the light was moving across the floor over time and Laura spent all night watching this light in the room or whatever you know this kind of great imagery 
one other thing I remember about this pro that project with Neil was that there was a thing about like what the intermission, not intermission music, it was even the pre-show, I think he added to it. Anyway, there's a recording of Tennessee Williams reading the glass, glass Menagerie in his own voice, right? It's not the audio quality, if I remember, wasn't particularly good, but that added to the kind of effect of it. So I remember the audience is loud, but this is all underneath um, the thing. So you'd, <laughs> you'd hear Tennessee Williams' voice reading. You'd hear these words like Tom and Blue Melange and, um, you know, all these things from... Uh, but you had no idea of placing, like, what is that until you've heard some of that in Act One. Then at intermission, you'd go, I think that's a guy reading the play. <laughs> but there was no... There, anyway, it really was Tennessee Williams reading his own play that Neil had as the pre-show, the intermission, and the play-out, essentially, you know. Um, you had, didn't at one point that the characters have flashlights or something? It, oh, the end of it. Um, the, yes, at the end, there's the thing about Laura, blow out your candles, and Tom's gone by then, right? Yeah. So... Um, Tom, who was played by Kiefer Sutherland, um, and his and um, his mother Shirley Douglas played Amanda in that production. So Tom came back in the end with um, a flashlight. So Laura was stationary; it just all went to kind of cold top light or something. Amanda was sitting at the kitchen table. Gentleman caller is gone, so it was just Mom and his sister at home. And Tom walks in with a flashlight. And is just looking at it's his memory. So, but he's got it's as if he's gone into his attic of memories. But his mother and his sister are still there. But he's finding it all with a flashlight. Very haunting, um, scary mm -hmm. thing, you know. But yeah, I guess if you're some people, Kiefer Sutherland with a flashlight pointing a flashlight in the dark at at Shirley, um, some people didn't dig that, probably, right. you know, I <laughs> right. guess maybe that was it. I don't, I think what you're referring to, I think, did I get a letter or something you when you a, worked here? Yeah, that, I think you got a letter saying, how dare you? It was too dark. Well, I think what got me going about that was that, yeah, a guy had sent a letter about it being too dark, but he only CC'd it to me. He actually sent it to David Mervish and to Christopher Newton who would, you know, would be two guys that would hire me, you know? So, right. like, <laughs> right. so I'm thinking, like, what is this guy on about? And the, but the idea of it was that that tone of the letter was kind of vitriolic, and, yeah, it was a bit like the gentleman caller scene, I think he thought was too dark. I can't remember exactly. Mm -hmm. But, anyway, I did respond by sending a... Um, Tennessee Williams description of the scene that he was talking about but I think the other thing with that letter was that he had complained to Newton about um, Doctor's Dilemma that he said that he'd seen Doctor's Dilemma at the Shaw and it was too dark as well and that he couldn't see anything and I'd never done a production of Doctor's Dilemma um, or no, was that it? Yeah, no, I'd done Doctor's Dilemma no, that's the case by then I'd done Doctor's Dilemma which is bright um, thing and there was no it didn't make any sense so then I f I didn't know what the guy was talking about so I think what the guy actually saw was a production of Devil's Disciple here okay. and that may have been dark but anyway he was kind of 
throwing me in, you know? Right. And I don't know if David Mervish responded, but I know Newton sent a letter, CC'd it to me, sent it back to the guy, which was a really nice note about the place for darkness in the theater and <clears throat> how important it is. Mm -hmm. And also not just in the theater. You can't, um, you can't have light without darkness, and that's the basic tenet of what we do, is that you need shadow or it doesn't... Um, everywhere like yeah. light is shadow right it's yeah Sholem Dolga used to call it interesting light so everything that came from the first from the front was not interesting light and only became interesting light when you actually got off to the 45 or the 30 degree side light. start wrapping the light around to around. reveal form right mm -hmm. that idea yeah. yeah but that said you know when you look at um, on film and sometimes in the theater we do it too is like you put something really soft from a balcony rail that's low and front light. Um, I know that it's flat, mm -hmm. but it's not uninteresting. Do right. you know it? Um, it can be diffuse and in kind of in the right place. A, an instance recently was a production of Endgame that I did at Soul Pepper, and that had you know that ended with one sort of flat light from a balcony rail right. that revealed those guys at the end in this kind of gray box. Mm -hmm. Uh, you worked on both Canadian productions of Cats and Les Mis in the, 18, in the 1980s. As an assistant, As yes. an assistant. Um, these were both American or British productions. And at the time, I imagine, I mean, I, I grew up in the early 80s, Phantom and all these kind of large spectacles that came to Toronto were something that we had never, something we'd never seen, right? And they were using moving lights for the first time. That was all sort of relegated to rock and roll back in the, mm -hmm. the late 70s and early 80s. And this was like a brand new thing. Um, and it really was a different aesthetic. Um, they really challenged, I think, Canadian theater design and designers to have to raise the bar. Like if this is the spectacle, if you want to produce a spectacle at this sort of scale, yeah. this is kind of what you now have to do to sell tickets. How do you think, first of all, how does the American aesthetic of theater, you were in New York City. How does the American aesthetic approaching theater compare to the Canadian aesthetic? Is there a difference? I mean, I'm not going to say which one is better, but um, how how do you see that? How do we approach things up here that is different uh, the, from other places? I don't know that I can. Those two shows specifically, like those were the first. I don't. They were the first ventures into com into a large scale commercial theater and there were producers in Toronto that were bringing those shows in for that sole purpose you know I guess it was um, to do long runs and to make money and that was very different than something like the Stratford Festival the Shaw Festival um, you know we come from a real not-for-profit theater tradition you know and it's in one way it's a kind of it's a very nurturing environment to be able to learn and and practice what you do um, when I went to school in New York, I didn't, I, I, you know, I had friends that worked in a lot of, not Broadway, but I also had some colleagues that worked on Broadway too. And that, both of those exist in America and do to this day, the commercial theater and the, and not. I think with those productions that like, um, I didn't work on the first Cats, like I worked on it, they did a, run at Massey Hall, right, initially, that I think ran for 18 months or something. I might have that wrong. And then it did a national tour, and then that's when I got involved, was when it went out on its national tour. Right. And same kind of thing with Les Mis. It was a little 
longer. When was that? It was, uh, well, the play was certainly longer. <laughs> that was in 89 or something. Yeah, but you know, I think in Canada, before my time probably, that, I mean, certainly that was a change in Toronto, but there had been a tradition of taking, like even Stratford sent things out across the country. Like I know Stratford would go to Winnipeg and like they would send things out and mm -hmm. large productions came into the National Arts Center in Ottawa, came into the O'Keeffe Center. Like there, they may not have been long runs though. So it wasn't completely foreign, right. Uh, right? It wasn't like out of the blue that this, what was out of the blue was maybe its producing model was to like, we're gonna try and run this thing like they do in New York longer than things normally would have run in Toronto. Mm -hmm. I guess that's it. Um, and uh, there was, with that kind of thing, there was a real professionalization of all things lighting to on those things. So it was, was a real learning thing for me, right? There was multiple follow spots. I'd never encountered that before. I don't even know that I'd even seen a show that had more than two follow spots, right. you know? Uh, Les Mis had six. Right. Um, and with that, you get a really different aesthetic. You know, you can't, without six follow spots, you can't really do a show that looks like it has six follow spots. Yeah. It's not possible. Um, so it had a really unique look and construction to it. Uh, both of those were lighting by David Hersey, who was, you know, just a tremendous. Uh, uh, and uh, when I went to school in New York, I saw Nicholas Nickleby that he did. So and that was the long show where you bought the long ticket and went for dinner and came All back. Right. It was a kind of main event in New York that in the early 80s, that show. And uh, I remember being uh, in the audience and seeing his lighting for that and just thinking like, this is... This is so good. <laughs> like every little bit of it just was just blew me away. And it just but simple, simple choices, like um, not complicated, clean, really, really clear ideas. Like um, nothing got muddy, do you know? Um, you recently completed a production of London Road. Yeah, I did. Um, in Toronto for the Canadian Stage Company. Um, now, first, before we get to that, I want you to describe um, just briefly how you kind of approach a show when you're actually in the theater queuing it. So um, do you go sequentially Q1 to Q100? Do you do each look by itself, or do you do something different, or do you build grand looks? Like, how do you approach the show? Just a standard, your standard kind of approach. So I'm already at the point where I'm sitting down to start levels, yes. let's say. Yeah, um, yeah just start at the top. I sometimes, uh, I was recently talking to this with an assistant uh, here. I don't necessarily do a pre-list. Like I have stuff in my script, which is my list, but I don't necessarily do a roadmap that I follow. <clears throat> I have on occasions in the past done that, but I find that sometimes I feel like it's too confining or I get kind of trapped. So I like to start and then respond in the moment to what I'm seeing rather than, like I've got a, in my script, I've got a loose outline of like, there's gonna be this one and there's gonna be a cue here and there's gonna be another one here. And I've got little notes to myself about what tone change, whatever, some something, but I don't really, it's pre-planned, but not written down, you know, if you, you know, sure. so that I can, 
trick myself into believing that I'm responding in the moment to something I'm seeing, I guess. Does that mean you never get to a paper cue? Like, do you ever do you ever try to put things in a book before you if get to There's not a lot of time on a show. Sometimes I'll try to give a stage manager a kind of heads up. So, yeah. so But a lot of times, those might just be the, the obvious. Um, all the sort of fillers and detail and all that kind of in-between stuff is... You know, I kind of have on my own and might add it later if it needs to be called or something. And how about the placement of a cue? So what are the obvious ones? Like, where do you think, in general, like, like something happens, what's going to happen that's going to spark a cue, uh, a lighting shift on stage? Uh, would have come from, a lot of times comes from rehearsal. Like, sometimes when I start, I'll just have a circle in my script that's kind of waiting for a cue number to happen there. And, I mean... A lot of times it's um, it's just a feeling, like it's just, um, I, there's the obvious, like um, somebody turns on a light switch, or or sometimes there's the just the simple French scene breakdown of like somebody new has entered the room, let's say, the blocking's going to change, you know, it's like adding one more marble to the bag, like they all start <laughs> rolling away to the walls or something, so... Um, you know, there's there's that kind of real structure to it, but those those um, internal cues where you want to feel like the lighting's like there's a cue running here that something's changing, that's a felt cue but not seen. Do you know what I mean? One of these kind of like, uh, uh, well, just that it's felt and, and not seen. Um, those are just things that I might see in rehearsal, but just get an idea that it feels like the lighting should be moving here. Mm -hmm. Something's shifting because of what's being said, because of the way a character's taking information in. Um, and how does that, how does that, uh, how did London Road differ from that in that it's, it's a different structure, right? Tell us about the play, first of all. It's a, it's a, it's a piece from uh, London. Um, the author is, um, Alaki Blythe and Adam Cork is the composer and it is a piece of verbatim theater mm -hmm. in the form of a musical um, in that it's sung through like an opera um, but Alaki interviewed um, all of the people um, the, the, the wider story of a, a, of a serial killer um, in uh, Ipswich in England and she interviewed a number of townspeople that were caught up in being affected by this story and then it's presented as a verbatim piece of theater so word for word what uh, came from those interviews is cut together and then and um, are the lyrics to this um, to this story right now we've seen kind of verbatim theater before i mean i uh, the laramie project is a you good did example, the laramie project but right? that was yeah. not sung that was just right spoken <laughs> so that's one thing but having to actually sing through this verbatim to put music to it seems to be a bit more of a radical idea absolutely yeah and i think that the adam the composer did an incredible job of taking that source material and turning it into music. Mm -hmm. And I think that the source material in itself was the, there's patterns in that speech, right? So he, he's copying those and elongating them. And our English language 
um, stands out in a different way in this piece than you've probably heard it. It's something you really don't expect, do you know? Now, um, lighting is not a, um, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, has a time dimension to it. So having a play with music in it seems like it would be helpful when in making choices about how changes occur and how the lighting progresses. Did you find that helpful or did you find a way in in order to... Well, that piece isn't structured like a, like a musical would be, do you know? It doesn't have its kind of transitional music isn't there. A scene ends and then, and then you've got to get to the next scene, but there's not music to kind of carry you there, right? So it was a very different structure. You really had to really kind of rethink in a way how you... How, not just me, Jackie Maxwell was the director, I think. Tough, tough um, way of finding your way into this, you know. Um, yeah, it, it kind of, in a strange sort of way, changed the way that I worked and approached it. Did Jackie, because she was sort of responsible for moving the play forward, did she have a lot of input um, and control over how all the steps in that progress? Like, did you take a lot of cues from her as far as what you were supposed to do, or was she expecting you to sort of respond to what her choices were and come up with something. Kind of both, I mm -hmm. think. You know, we did, that show, we did have a lot of meetings ahead of time to figure out just, um, part of it is that for the cast, it's such a difficult sing, and they also can't have a lot of mobility because of seeing um, Reza, the conductor. They had to be really connected to him. So there's a lot of limitations here, do you know, that you kind of like in, in an opera, you've got a, a tough thing in an opera where you've got to get down center and watch the conductor. And you're not really going to be doing very much other business in this scene. Right. So there's a lot of that going on is to structure it around the physical challenge of being able to present the material. And with that, then the lighting design was built on, it's a community. So at times they're collective, they're together as a community. At other times they're isolated within their community. So it's finding these things that, you know, this thing being said is that person's view alone. So that feels like he should be in isolation, even though he's standing in a crowd. Mm -hmm. So you could, you know, you started to get those kind of things from it. Right. Um, and how about the general aesthetic for the piece? Like, how did you find your way into that? I didn't, I didn't, unfortunately I didn't see it, but can you describe how you... Judith Bowden did the set design and costumes. Um, set was kind of asymmetrical. It had a street scene that was um, as if it was London Road out the back, but that wasn't revealed until the very end. Mm -hmm. So scenically, she had a lot of things in there where it was just like a sliver of that street that you saw that would get kind of slowly revealed over time. Um, yeah, um, I think I just started kind of scene by scene and what physically, where are they, uh, which also wasn't defined necessarily by the set. That was the other thing. Like sometimes they'd be in their own living rooms, which was manifest simply by a, a chair and isolated light, you know, so there's, um, simple. And I think that was the other thing in a direction that that Jackie gave us was that it was, in one sense, the piece is incredibly complicated, but we didn't necessarily need to do that, you know? Like, 
so in its kind of minimal um, approach, that that seemed to be the best, the best thing, right. and to present these characters in a really not accessible is the wrong word, but uh, they weren't they weren't hidden in any way, right? In that an honest kind of way, it's just like you and I are talking now. It should feel like that somehow, like this person is telling you the story. Like a lot of stuff was was obviously just straight at the audience. It wasn't between two characters. So, One of the things that uh, uh, struck me in speaking with designers that had gone before me was there was this kind of pressure to remain relevant. Uh, there's a lot of people coming up from underneath who have, they're, in their, they're young, they have got new ideas, they're building relations with new directors. And in, I think for any artist in any genre, remaining relevant is, is a pressure that everyone feels. Um, and I've been told over and again that theater is a career for the young, right? In many, many ways it is, right? You can make a lot of more personal choices that don't have a lot of repercussions on families and housing and, and uh, those kind of more quote-unquote grown-up uh, ideas. Um, you've survived as a designer in Canada. You work a lot. You work across the country, and your career is, has been pretty spectacular when it comes to the number of shows you've done and the, and the people you've worked with. How have you found a way to remain fresh and relevant and not get sort of stuck into your own kind of uh, aesthetic? Um, how, do you, how do you look forward? Like, is it just a war of attrition? Like, did you just win? No, no, I think, well, if that's the case, I think the war is still going on, right? Um, no, I think that a lot of it is probably, uh, is probably access to different directors and being challenged uh, that way, right? Like, it's good for, it's really good for me to not, um, to not do the same, the same thing, you know? I think it's pro we're probably all prone to want to kind of settle to that, you know, like, it's you know it was good yesterday, so let's let's do that again. And uh, I try not to like. There's just there's lots of inspiration out there not not to do that. Like to look in a different way. And I, I don't know if I probably laid plot lighting plot over lighting plot over lighting plot. I'd like to think that they're pretty radically different. The, the Shah, in one sense, is different in that it's a rep plot. So there are some things that are very tried and true and that have to be. It's complicated because there's three shows and shared lighting and that, and, and there's some things that are real usual suspects that that come around again, and um, there's those kind of things. But um, it's also directors. I find that directors work differently. Like there can be a real mixed bag of the way that they work and what they expect and that kind of thing. So I'm I'm always learning from from that you know like I kind of check the experience at the door and then it's always another way to to look at it and to start and to see uh, you know what a different approach would be I also try I guess I was saying about that queuing thing like I don't want to it's kind of like that like I don't necessarily make a formal list of like this queue is pre-numbered and it's going to be this mm -hmm. like I don't I just don't respond well to that right it's too confining. So, yeah, I kind of like that. I like that freedom. But I also, watching younger people work, I also enjoy the kind of choices that they make. So there's, there's inspiration in that, too, is to not, 
ah, it's rule breaking somehow. And I think young people sometimes don't know the rules, so they just do it. So, so for me, it, it's a little different because I probably somewhere along the line I know the rule and uh, uh, I kind of check in with it. But I, you know, when I see other people break a rule and I think, well, that works. You know, like that's that's good. Yeah. Like once I I I feel like once you've worked in in many theaters over and over and again. And there's certain problems or peculiarities to each one of those theaters that you've managed to solve to find that box boom position in a place that doesn't have a box boom. Or to, how do we do footlights in, in this venue? Or how do you keep, how do you light these Vaughn? Like a, in Regina at the Globe Theater, you have all these Vaughns. Which is this, in the round, right? Did in, you yes, work out there? Yeah, right. This theater in the round, you have four of these Vaughns, and there's this very specific way to light people standing in front of the audience and not blind everybody and get like that's a problem that has to be solved and, and once you've solved off it off the audience on the far side uh, so yeah and yeah. Have, have everyone have no one wear white pants yes um, like but the courthouse so, here is yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly but once you've solved those problems the first time you're very tempted to just do the same thing over and over and over again to solve those problems right right and there probably is that like there probably is a level of Gee, forty um, percent of this, sixty percent of this is the same thing. Like you've worked out all those shots, and that thing hits down left, and it doesn't mm -hmm. get in the audience. That's where that light has to go. You know, like um, you could find that again and again and again. The courthouse here is a very similar thing. That 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 rep plot has, and it's a, it's a thrust. And there's nine areas downstage, three areas upstage. Like it does fall into very similar patterns, and then we add our own show specific things on top of that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not a bad word like to um, to do something that works. Like um, it needs to be tempered, I guess, though, uh, like with um, adding specific things for that show and not getting that show to shoehorn into something that you've done. You know? Yeah. Um, you're responsible for, for future planning and, and purchasing and and making sure that the festival here has enough has the right the right gear at the right time. Responsible for past planning as well. I still have to <laughs> right, right. Yes. deal with everyone else's yeah. choices. Exactly. Right. Why do we have this thing? <laughs> exactly. So I think that you've probably gotten rid of most of your Century gear, right? Yeah. The old Strand twenty three hundred. Some series. of that stuff's probably in props as a. Rob Thompson pulls it out every a, time to. I need one more light for this thing down right. There, some of that gear is like. Um, because the industrial design is so beautiful on some of those things, they occur like pattern 123s, for instance, right. you know, like this beautiful piece of 1930s industrial design, 20s maybe even. Yeah. And so uh, they, if, if a stage light needs to appear on stage somewhere, it's often, it's often a beautifully painted pattern 123. <clears throat> right. And we have, you know, some more Richardson 5Ks if it's like... Um, Exactly. <clears throat> Wheel one of those out. Right. Um, what has been, um, all that old gear has sort of come out of the main inventory, and we're starting to see like LED technology and more advanced computer technology and moving lights really be a standard in larger uh, legit theater or larger like, like regional theater. What's the, what are the challenges of incorporating that new technology into, for example, a Shaw, which is a, you know, the plays are are rather old. They're very relevant, but they're 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 set in a time period where it wasn't high tech. And how do you sort of incorporate these 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 new technologies into 
uh, into the play, I, and for, from two different ways. One from an aesthetic point of view, and and the second time is second sort of theme is how oftentimes these technologies take a lot more time to work with. Sure. The the big thing in the early consideration when we started getting into moving lights was noise, right? That was that's always the thing, and it's still oh, it's constant, constant, constant concern. Um, and uh, we've, uh, you know, knock on wood, we've kind of got that solved here at the festival. In the festival theater, the stuff is trimmed really quite high, surrounded by borders. There's ballast. They're like VL-1000 arcs ballast up above, so the ba ballast is way up at the top, so it's up around 34 feet or something, so not getting a lot of noise complaints there. But, the, you know, we still have a lot of scrollers, and um, um, that's a... That stuff's a drag. Like it's really handy and it's great to be able to use it, but it the theater sounds different than it used to, and that's um, and that's a constant battle is to get is to not add stuff and then add noise, right? So I'm always on the lookout for that sort of thing. Um, and um, but I must admit, having the this equipment, like having the VL, we have a dozen VL one thousands here at the festival theater, the main theater. And um, that because we do rep, that's become a godsend of these things. Do you know, like mm -hmm. they, there's 12 top lights. We move them around uh, year to year, depending on the footprints of the different sets. But um, you can map out each show and be really quite specific with, with these. Uh, so they're really doing the job of what formerly would have, would have hung a lot more lights. Mm -hmm. um, having said that, we still hang an awful lot of lights. But yeah, they're, they're really good. And we have found the time in the schedule to kind of pre-plan for them. And that technology has just gotten better and better and better in terms of the interface, the board control to the moving light, like that. What are you using uh, to control them? We now have uh, ETC Geos. That's the main board here at the festival. And there's... Um, so that that's great, you know. And previous to that, we had the Strand 520s, mm -hmm. and you know that was a real learning curve, and there was a lot of extra work that went into that. Yeah. They were really on the cusp of that transfer between a strictly moving light console and a and a theater console. They were kind of a kludge or a yeah, kind of making up for they stuff were that left out. Yeah, but now this year you're saying the Geo is a much better color wise. Product. Focus-wise, yeah, it's just it's quick to program and right. doesn't hold you up. You know, it doesn't. It it it's quick and. And how about LED technology? I mean, there was a point at which the Ontario government was going to get rid of all incandescent bulbs, which would right. kind of leave us in alert. Which right? is kind, kind of happening things. in Europe, right? They've mm -hmm. got, uh, um, you know, they've got legislation uh, against uh, some of the tungsten sources. Yeah. Um, we don't have a lot of LED equipment here, but I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And I'd say that like there's some stuff that I have used that's, that's really specific, and it's not, um, you know, I'm a real kind of color purist, and I haven't liked some of that stuff. Um, um, but I've worked on shows where I've had LED psych units, and kind of like it gets better and better and better, and the board uh, interface gets easier to work with them and stuff. And one thing that I um, like about the LED 
technology. Not that we have a lot of it here, but I'm kind of on the cusp of that, of, of you know, we've got to move forward with that kind of stuff. Um, the LED snaps on and snaps off, which is really an effect that we had to work hard to get that kind of thing happening before. Right. So that's that's really a kind of tool that, you know, there are some scenes that you want to just end it. Right, and, and you've got 300 lights at 20% and you turn them off. Yeah. It takes a bit of time for them exactly. to go to black. And there's nothing to say there are some times where that fits a moment, mm -hmm. but there are other ones where you just want it to like just be there and gone. And the LED is terrific at that. Yeah. Um, the heat, of which there's very little, mm -hmm. um, and sound, mm -hmm. no noise. So I'm, I really want to get out of the scroller business. Yeah. So I'm kind of hoping that there's something that's kind of, and the other thing I, like I know that it's not a direct replacement. Like I think that the LED profile is, it's a new tool. It's mm -hmm. another thing. Like it's not going to be exactly like, um, you know, it, and it probably shouldn't be. I know that it gets compared to like, does the source for LED, is it like the existing source for, I right. think they're really two, they're not entirely apples and they're apples and apples, but they're two very different kinds of apples. Right. <laughs> uh, sure. And, uh, but anyway, I'm looking forward to that, that, uh, technology getting better. Um, not just better, like I think it's getting really close. Mm -hmm. And some of the psych lighting stuff is, it, it wasn't just even two or three years ago, wasn't that good. Um, and it's better. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much, Kevin, for joining me today. It's been great to chat with you. Thanks. Thanks. Do it again. That was lighting designer Kevin Lamont speaking to me from the Shaw Festival. We will meet again soon to continue our discussion, but that should give you a good grounding in Kevin's approach to design. Next time on the Pedal Block, I actually speak to a designer of sets and costumes. Sean Kerwin will join me to talk about her life and her work. The music is Podsafe music from the 1990s called See You by the Lights. You can find them at roughtraderecords.com slash the 1990s. Please go to iTunes and give us a review. It will help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theater design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at the Block CA and on Facebook.com slash the Block Podcast. Feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers, or listen to it while you sew spangles on the cloak of goody good in your school's radical reinterpretation of the crucible, exclamation mark. I'm Michael Cruz, and I'll see you next time on The Title Block. Did you?